The solution to the riddle of life and space and time lies outside of space and time. Those are the words of Austrian philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. The solution to the riddle of life and space and time lies outside of space and time. Think about that. I think we can look around and know that to be true. What he's saying is that the problems of this world, the, our search for meaning, our search for justice, our search, search for love and community, that to really find it, we have to look beyond ourselves, that the, the problems of this world can't simply be solved by the best solutions of this world, that the solution to the riddle of life in the world has to come from, from out there beyond the world. And I think we know that to be the case. If you look at, uh, look at the news, right, as much as we long for justice and harmony in our nation, in our social world, we know that we're far better, it seems, at producing division and hatred, and we're unable to put it back together again. We know that just looking at our own lives, right, our own best efforts at goodness, our own best efforts at, at growing in righteousness tend to come up empty. We can't heal ourselves of what's broken. In fact, sometimes our the best we could do, the best we can do is what got us into this mess. It got us as broken as we are. What's the, the saying uh, in AA, right? Your best thinking got you here, right? Your, your attempts at getting this right is what got you to where you are. And so if you, if you want to get better, if you want to find freedom, if you want to find life, it's going to take being willing to look out beyond yourself. But Wittgenstein goes on. I've butchered that name twice now. Wittgenstein uh, goes on to say his very next sentence, but God does not reveal himself in the world. So for him, for a philosopher, he believed that he had to speculate and figure out what was out there, what was out beyond space and time, what transcended the human predicament to where he could find life. And he said that God does not reveal himself in the normal stuff of this world, that we have to go beyond it. And the Gospel of John, the author of this Gospel, Jesus' disciple John, he says, yes, so that, that's half true, that the solution to the riddle of space and time does have to come from beyond us. But God does reveal himself in the world. God does reveal himself in this world. In fact, that's the very point of this uh, beginning chapter of John, these first 18 verses is what he's claiming is that God, the God who made us, the God of the universe, the God who does offer the power and the answers to transform our lives in this world, has stepped into this world, he's spoken into this world to offer us hope and life. As we start uh, in this study of the Gospel of John, which is essentially the story of who Jesus is, Right, that's what the Gospels are. The Gospels are the stories written by eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus about who he is, what he did, what he taught, who he was during his earthly life. And so John is going to tell us the biography of Jesus. But it's more than that. It's a biography with a purpose. It's the story of Jesus told with a particular purpose. And he tells us what that purpose is in John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. This is basically John's summary statement. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Right? He says, Look, I can't write down everything that Jesus ever did, ever said. There's some wonderful stuff, incredible miracles that are left on the, 
on the editing room floor because they're just, I'm, I'm picking certain stories to tell you. But these stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So two parts. That reading the story of Jesus, that you would believe, that you would believe that he is who he says he is. That he is, he is Christ, he is the Messiah. That he's the very Son of God. In that believing, you would have life in his name. Believing in him that you would find life a transformed life in his name. So he's writing a biography with a purpose, right? That all of, all of his original readers and all of us, these thousands of years later, would come to this book with a purpose, that we would come to believe in the Jesus that he tells us about. And in believing in that Jesus would find life in his name. And so let's say you were to sit down and write a biography, to write a biography, the story of somebody's life. How would you start your biography? You might start by telling us uh, when this person was born, the subject of your story. You might tell us a little bit about his family. Uh, you might tell us a little bit about the, the, the social world that he was born into. But you'd probably start pretty close uh, to the birth of the subject of your biography. Where does John start? In the beginning was the word. It's a pretty audacious way to start a biography, to start with the beginning of the universe to start a story with in the beginning. Because what John believes and what, he's, what we're gonna see in this is that he believes when he's telling us the story of Jesus, when he's telling us Jesus' biography, that he's actually telling us the biography of God, that he's actually telling us the whole story of God and the world from creation past all the way through up to our contemporary lives, that to tell the biography of Jesus is to tell the biography of God. It shows that he's not, he doesn't think he's just telling us the story of uh, a Jewish religious teacher who lived and died, end of story. But he's telling us the biography of God. These first 18 verses that we read uh, together, these are like the overture of a symphony, right? If you ever have, have listened and studied classical music, oftentimes the overture will introduce the themes that are, that are gonna come out later on in the piece of music. They might play a few bars or a few movements that are gonna circle back and come up later on. And that's what John's doing in these first 18 verses. He's introducing a lot of the themes that are gonna come up over and over again in his gospel, themes like light and life, themes like uh, the Father and the Word. So these themes come up. And we're gonna look uh, this morning at these themes, particularly he's, gonna, he's really, in, the, in these 18 verses, he tells us the whole story of the Bible, from the creation to Jesus' incarnation, him becoming man, to his cross and resurrection. So we're gonna look at those movements and see what that can mean for us, that how believing in that, we can have life. As we said, he begins with creation. John begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Every single Israelite reader uh, or anybody familiar with the Old Testament who came and read uh, the first verses of John, and when they read in the beginning, would say, oh, I know exactly where this comes from. Right? These are the very first words of the Bible. These are the first words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so what John is doing is he's taking the reader all the way back to Genesis chapter one and saying that in the beginning, when there was God, God was not alone. He packs a lot of theology into this brief statement, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. First, he calls Jesus the word, the word. You know, think about it, the word, the words that a person speaks or the way oftentimes that we know that person, the way that we come to know who they are and what they believe in and what they value, right? If I know you, if I, if I meet you, I can't tell that much about you just by looking at you. But when you start to speak, when you start to tell me about yourself, about your character, about who you are, about what you think, about what you believe, about what you love, then I get to know you in more depth and richness and complexity. And so when John says that Jesus is the word of God, he means that he is the self-expression of God. Paul tells us that you can know some things about God just by looking at the world, right? There's certain things that you can discern about who God is just by looking out at the, at the beach or looking out at the mountains. You can see that God's powerful, that he's mighty, that he's beautiful. But you can't know God. You can't know his love or his grace you can't know his justice or his kindness. Just by looking out at the world, it took a word. It took God speaking. Amen. And he speaks. He speaks from the very first pages of the Bible. Right? He creates by speaking. God speaks the world into being when he says, let there be light. Right? He speaks. So his word is his self-expression, but it's also powerful. It has the power to accomplish what he sets out to do. It does stuff in the world. And so when, when John says that Jesus is the word, it means that Jesus is God's powerful self-expression. That in Jesus is everything God wants to communicate about himself to his world. And not only the ability to, to communicate his grace, to communicate his, his justice, but the power to carry it out. That Jesus is the word. And he was God and he was with God. He was God and he was with God. This is, the, this is the mystery of the Trinity, right? This is the mystery of the fact that you could say that the word was with God, so separate things, but the word was God, so the same thing, right? So the word, this, this, what John packs into a sentence is this complex idea that Jesus has always existed from eternity past, from before creation, that he was side by side with God in communion and in unity, but that he is divine, that he is God himself, that he is God, that all of this creation happened through and for the preexistent Jesus. You know, this uh, one of the great commentators on John, a man named G.K. Barrett, puts it this way in, this, in his section on this. He says, the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, then the book itself is blasphemous, right? As we look at the gospel of John, as we see some of the things that John is going to claim about Jesus, that he heals, that he saves, that he calms the storm, that he can raise people from the dead, that he can feed people from nothing, that all of those things, he's describing things that only God can do. And so if Jesus isn't established as God himself at the very beginning, at the very outset of this book, then he becomes, for an Israelite, blasphemous. Anybody who claimed that there was a way to, be, to find salvation 
other than through Yahweh, other than through the true God, would be heretical. And so what he's saying is that Jesus himself is God. He's the creator God. He's the God who made everything, the God who sustains everything. That all of creation is made through Jesus, and more than that, it's made for Jesus. Right? That all of it, all of creation, is summed up in Jesus. That he's the one who holds it all together. The poet D.H. Lawrence uh, has this great little poem. He says, water is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. But there's also a third thing that makes it water, and no one knows what it is. Right? We're saying that, that science only gets us so far in describing how the world holds together. But we know that there's something else, something beyond just what we can study and know and analyze that holds the creation together. And for John, he's saying that that thing that holds the creation together are the hands of Jesus, that he holds all things together. And then look at verse four. This is actually one of the harder verses to translate uh, in the gospel of John. It's probably best translate, uh, translated when what had been made was made, there was life in him. So what he's saying is that God, Jesus not only created everything, but he created it in such a particular way that it's made to find life in him, that it had life in him. We had life in him from creation, that we are made for communion with Jesus, that we are made for life with Jesus. Everything that had been made, the creatures, found their fullness of life in the creator, and that's the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, Young Life, which is a, a ministry that we support, uh, we support the work of Young Life here in Jacksonville, particularly at Lee High School. It's a ministry that exists to tell high school students and, and others about who Jesus is. And one of their slogans that, that they print up on t-shirts and put everywhere uh, is, you were made for this. It's one of the slogans that Young Life has, you were made for this. And John 1 tells us that that is a theologically accurate statement that we were made for life with God. We were made for communion with God. And so the Young Life uh, staff and volunteers, we have some of them in this church, when they walk onto a high school campus, even if they walk up to a student who knows nothing about Jesus, who's never heard the name of Jesus, they can truthfully say, you were made for Jesus. Your soul, your life was made in such a way that you find fullness in Jesus and nowhere else. And that's actually, I think, where all Christian ministry begins. To say to people, you were made for Jesus. There's a lot of talk, and I think it's true, that you can't understand the good news of the gospel, right? That Jesus died for you until you understand the bad news of sin, right? You can't understand why Jesus had to die until you understand just how bad sin is. And so we talk about sin. We're going to talk about it some today. But I think it's also equally true that you can't understand the bad news of sin until you understand the good news that comes before the bad news, which is that you were made for communion with God. Right? You can't understand why sin is so tragic until you understand that you were made for communion with God. The reason, the reason that the addictions that hold us in bondage are so tragic is that you were made for God himself. You were made to be filled with his fullness, not, not through counterfeits. Right? What's so tragic about the ways that we hate one another and build ourselves up by tearing one another down is that we were made for God. We were made for him. 
And every time we settle for something else, it's a tragedy. And so you've got to know the good news before the bad news before the good news. Uh, to really understand the beauty of how you're made, the beauty that we're made for God, the tragedy that instead of finding our life in him, we chase after it elsewhere, and the good news that he comes after us in Jesus. And so we're made for God himself. But John goes on from there. He says, not only are you created by and for Jesus, the creation is at the end. He goes on and starts to talk about the incarnation is that the God that we were made for doesn't leave us in this world left to find our way to him, but he actually comes towards us. Because as much as it's true that we're made for God, what John says here in verse 18 is also true, that no one has ever seen God. Right? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The God that we were made for, the God that we're designed to find our life in, None of us have ever seen him. There's none of us in this room can look at one another and say, oh, you want to know what God's like? Let me tell you, he's about six foot five, long white beard, uh, really kind. No, none of us have ever seen God. And so God has to reveal himself to us. God comes near to us to tell us what he's like, to speak to us through his word and ultimately through his son in the incarnation. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word that existed before creation became flesh, became flesh and blood, real as much as I'm real. He became flesh and blood and he dwelt among us. The the Hebrew word or the Greek word that uh, is used here is the same word that in the Old Testament translates the word tabernacle, the, the tabernacle where God dwelt, the tent where God physically met with his people. And so it says, literally, if you, it's the word became flesh and tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus. You see, uh, Jesus isn't the first time that God has shown us that he wants to make his life with his people. It's actually the story from the, from the time that our, uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created. God wanted to dwell with them in the garden. When sin enters into the picture and they rebel and are expelled from the garden, He shows page after page of the Old Testament that he's coming near to them. First through the covenant that he makes with them and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David. The covenant, the bond of his love. He shows that he's moving towards his people. He shows it in the tabernacle and in the temple where he literally dwelt. That if you could be in there, you would have seen the cloud of his glory present there. That's why John links this tabernacling that when we see Jesus in the tabernacle, we see God's glory, the glory of the one and only. Right, that God has always been moving towards his people so that we would know what he's like and so that we could have a relationship with him. The author of Hebrews starts uh, his book by saying in previous, in previous ways and in many, in many various ways, God has made himself known to our fathers. But in these latter days, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That all of those other ways that God spoke, all of those other ways that God came near to us, kind of pale in comparison to the way that he comes and makes himself clear to us in the person of Jesus. As we've said, everything God wanted to say, he has said to us in Jesus. That Jesus is the autobiography of God. It's God's attempt to to tell us what he's like. You know, if you've ever been uh, to London, 
there is in the middle of Trafalgar Square, one of the central squares of London, there's a statue of um, Admiral Nelson, great uh, British military hero, naval hero. And that statue of Lord Nelson stands on top of a pillar that goes up 170 feet in the air. So you go in, busy everything around you, there's a 170 foot pillar, and at the top of the pillar, there's a statue. And the statue is actually pretty large. It's larger than life size. But at 170 feet up, you can't quite make it out, right, all that well. You can tell that it's a person. Uh, you can tell that, it, that he's in the army or in the Navy. Uh, but you can't really make it out. You can't, it's actually a beautiful statue, but you can hardly see it because it's so high, it's so far removed. And so about 50 years ago, what somebody did was in order to give people a view of this, this beautiful statue, is they made a... a a reproduction, a replica of the statue and brought it down and put it at eye level so that people could see what it was like, so that people could see the statue. And that's somewhat, of, somewhat analogous to what goes on in the incarnation. Right? God tells us what he's like. He's clearly seen in his word. He shows us what his character is like. But he's so high, he's so far above us as human beings, we can't quite see him. We can't quite make it out. And so in Jesus, the God who's above us comes down here with us in a way that we can see, in a way that we can understand, a way that we can actually start to begin to wrap our mind around in a person like you and I are, so that we could know what he's like, so that we could know exactly who he is and what he wants for us. That's what's going on here in verse 17, when he says, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is actually a hard verse to get right. Uh, because we know that the law that came through Moses is actually full of grace and truth. Right? It's gracious. It's, it's God's uh, kindness to us that he would teach us what he wants for us, how to live. It's, it's covered in God's grace. It actually starts with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Right? So it, it begins with God's love and his grace. It's full of his truth. Right? It's, it's a reflection of his character. So if we know that the law that came through Moses was good, it was graceful, it was truthful, what is it that's unique about what happens in Jesus that's full of grace and truth? Well, in, in Exodus 34, we see one of what became one of the uh, most uh, well-known ways in Israel's faith of referring to God. This is... Um, as God passes in front of Moses, as God actually lets Moses see the backside of his glory uh, while they're in the wilderness, right after he's given him the commands, this is the way that God refers to himself. It's, uh, it's written in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. The psalmist will use this language a lot, but this is how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the, the, the personal name of God, a merciful and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That word, steadfast love and faithfulness, becomes a pair of words that gets used not just here, but over and over again in the Old Testament to describe God. Emet is his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and hesed is his loving kindness and his mercy. That becomes a, a shorthand way of describing who God is, full of loving kindness, full of mercy, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And those two words are the words that are translated by John here, grace and truth. It's the same words in the Greek. 
And so basically what he's saying is that in Moses, the law came, God's word came. But in Jesus, God came. In Jesus, the real and true God, full of grace and truth, came and you could see him and you could touch him and you could know him. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how you can have a relationship with God, John says, look to Jesus. Get to know Jesus, that Jesus is an accurate representation of who God is. That there's not some other angry God hiding off somewhere behind Jesus and saying, oh, you know, I hope they'll fall for Jesus because I'm actually really pretty nasty. I'm really judgmental. I'm really angry. I'm really mean. No, that the the God that shows himself in Jesus, the God who heals the lepers and raises the dead and is kind to the outcasts and embraces prostitutes, that that is the God. It's the God who made us. It's the God of the Old Testament. T.F. Torrance, uh, one of my favorite theologians, puts it this way. It's poetic and beautiful. Says it better than I can. He says, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God that we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the the hands of God are the hands of Jesus. In life and in death are the same. If you want to know God, if you want to know how you can know God, Study the Gospel of John with us. Get to know who Jesus is and what he offers to us. Well, John not only says that that Jesus created all things, he not only says that in Jesus God became man, he also shows us that Jesus died and rose again. He he forecasts where this story is heading in the rest of the Gospel. He says it when he says in verse 5, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He shows us when he says in verse 11, he came into his own and his own people, those people that were made for him did not receive him. Right, that in Jesus, God comes to us. But the very people that were made for life with God reject him. The very people that were made for him crucify him. That this Jesus, this light of creation came into a dark world. And the people loved the darkness instead of the light. And so they rejected him. And Jesus, we see really the the whole story of human sin from Genesis played out again. Human beings rejecting the overtures of God, rejecting the love of God, and instead uh, sending him to the cross. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. I love the fact that John, uh, you know, if you're writing a, if you're writing a story, if you're like if you were to take a fiction writing class or a, even a, a nonfiction writing class and learn how to write, what they would tell you is you want to build some tension in your story, right? You want to you want to leave people guessing for how the story is going to resolve itself. You don't want to you don't want to tell them at the very beginning, hey, by the way, they're going to fall in love and get married and it's all going to be fine. You don't want to tell them it's all going to live happily ever after in the end. You want to build the tension, let them worry about whether or not it's going to it's going to come out all right. And yet John, it's like he can't keep the secret in. It's like he can't, he can't wait to tell you that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. That there's going to be moments in the story where it looks like the darkness is overcoming it. There's going to be entire chapters in the gospel of John that get dark, 
where it's gonna look like Jesus is abandoned by not only the crowds, but by his closest friends. There's gonna be moments where he's hanging by himself, utterly abandoned, seemingly by God the Father on the cross. There's gonna be moments of excruciating darkness. But John says here at the beginning, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome the light. Right, Jesus, the light, overcomes the darkness. He's gonna shine out over it. He's gonna defeat death. He's gonna be resurrected. The light shines in the darkness. You know, some of us need to hear this this morning, that the light, because of the resurrection, darkness doesn't have the last word. Because of the resurrection, light shines in our darkness, in your darkness and in my darkness, in our corporate darkness. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't put it out, right? The, the good news of the gospel isn't that bad things won't happen, right? It's not that you won't sin. It's not that you will overcome every addiction in your life. It's not that every relationship is going to be rosy. The good news isn't that darkness doesn't exist. The good news is that darkness doesn't win, right? It's that darkness doesn't have the last word. It's that this story doesn't end in sin, in bondage, in despair, in sickness, and in death, right? That hate doesn't win, that love and light and life triumph over darkness. And there's moments, there's moments in the story of Jesus where it doesn't look like that's true, and there's moments in your life and in my life where it doesn't feel like that's true. But because of the resurrection, the light shines in the darkness and is not overcome. So what does this mean for us? You know, he ends it here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That this Jesus, this Jesus who created things, who became human, who died, who resurrected, is at the Father's side, right? He doesn't say this one who was at the Father's side back in creation. No, the word that was made flesh, the, word, the son that left the Father to be made man is back. Risen from, the day, risen from the grave at the Father's side. And we're made to have a relationship with him. And so the way that John understands, remember we said at the beginning that the, the, the purpose of his writing is that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Right, the, the, the John's story, the story of Jesus that he's telling, he's telling the, bi the biography of Jesus so that he can tell the biography of God but it's not complete. His story's not complete until it changes my biography and your biography. Until the story of Jesus starts to change our stories. It hasn't fulfilled its purpose. And so what does it mean when we're joined with this one who's, who's living at the Father's right hand? What does it mean? How does it change our lives? Well, he tells us, he tells us in verse four that it means that in Jesus we can find life that we were made to have life in him. The Greek word here is zoe. Uh, the Greeks had more words than we do. Uh, and they had two different words to describe life. One was bios, which is biology. It's the, the, the life that we live, the, the life that breathes and the heart that beats and the life that we live in the body, the biological life. We all have that. If you're in this room and not dead, you have biological life. But you weren't made just to have biological life. You weren't made just to suck air and eat food and drink, you are made for zoe, for abundant life, for full life, for life that, that's deep and rich, life that shows all of the fullness of the life of God. Yes, 
You were made more, for more than existence. You were made to thrive in a relationship with God. And you can find that relationship with God through faith in Jesus. You can find that abundant, full life. So in him, we find abundant life. In him, you find the right to be called children of God. Look at verse 12. For all who did receive him, in a world that rejected him, for all who receive him, he, uh, who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Right, we're gonna get a lot more into this in John 3. Um, but he's saying that in God, in Jesus, you can find new life. You can be born again into a new life as a son or daughter of God. Right, and that's the, the good news of the gospel is that, that you can be a child of God. Right, this is, this is pretty amazing. That God uh, took those who had been his enemies, those who had rejected him, and he not only just said, oh, you know what, okay, I'll forgive you and you can stop being my enemy, you can become my slave, right? You can become my servant and just do what I say. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't even just say, you can you cannot be my enemy, you cannot be my servant, but you can, you can be my friend, although there's places where he will call us friends, but he doesn't just say that. He says, those who were my enemies can become my adopted sons and daughters, can become members of my family, can become objects of my love, can become a, uh, just as, as dear to me as your sons and daughters are to you, that you can become children of God by believing in the name of Jesus. So we can find life, we can find adoption as his sons and daughters, and then we can find a calling, we can find a vocation. You know, like we're, we're going to talk a lot more about John the Baptist next week. So I've left out some of these passages uh, in this part where he talks about John the Baptist. But I do love that in this, in this big, uh, deeply poetic, uh, huge story that John's telling, that he does put a few very, very human touches on it through the person of John the Baptist. He said, there was a man, verse six, sent from God whose name was John. He came, as a witness to bear, uh, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. As we come to new life in God through Christ, as we come to be his sons and daughters, we get a new calling to bear witness to the light, to be humble witnesses who say, you know what, I'm not the light. I'm not the savior of the world. I'm not the one that has all of the answers to the problems that plague us. I'm just someone who's here to tell you where I've found light. I'm here to tell you where I've found light and life and grace. To be people like John who point beyond ourselves to the one whose light shines in the darkness, even the darkness of this world, even the darkness of my life and your life, even the darkness of this city, this neighborhood, this country. To point beyond ourselves, to say we don't have all the answers. We don't have the light, but we point to the one whose light shines in the darkness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have shown us the light and love and goodness of God. Lord, we pray that believing we would have life in your name, that we would see you in all of your grace and truth, in you that we would find life and find our fullness. Lord Jesus, help us to find our life in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.